This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. I'm just completely blown away by our conversation today with Dr. Tim Erig. I mean, the conversation to me, it really illustrated the importance of death with dignity and compassion. It illustrated the importance of palliative care within health value. And in my mind, and I, and I hope our listeners can appreciate this once they hear the podcast, more is not more when it comes to healthcare. We need to be thinking about how palliative care can be a key tenant of health value. And I, what I really learned today in our conversation was just how misunderstood and undervalued palliative care and whole person care is in our society. And I really think there's so much that can be contributed to the thinking here that Dr. Tim Eric can really lead the way. So I couldn't think of a better guest to really ha have this important conversation. You know, Eric, I think you're right. Tim talks a lot about paradigm shifts and linear algorithms for the current treatment models and how we need to shift our thinking to, to other type of uh, approaches. And his thoughtfulness, and you'll hear this as, you know, the listeners will hear this as, as he kind of pontificates and explains things, but it's, it's going to start their own paradigm shift. It did for me. It helps set the the framework and the mental model and thinking that we need to have as individuals as as caregivers in the healthcare industry that will really truly lead to caring for patients and and not as he says doing things to patients but doing things with patients and for them eric tim comes to us with he's already kind of a healthcare celebrity he's got a ted talk what we can do to die well with over a million and a half hits He's written two books, Palliative Care and Symptom Management and The Art of Healthcare Innovation. You're right. He's just a, a rock star when it comes to you know, who we want to be having conversations with and, and a, a great person to have on our podcast today. I'm excited to, to share this with our listeners. 
Couldn't agree more, Daniel. And I, I think this goes beyond just health value. This is really an important human endeavor that we're exploring with Tim and understanding palliative care and how we can better treat patients you know, at their um, important moments in life. And so let's kick it off to Tim and the race to value. Hi, Tim. Welcome to our podcast. We're so glad to have you with us today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Tim, I really count this as a great privilege to have you with us. You know, you're a foremost leader in palliative care across the industry, a critical thought leader. You've accomplished so much for the healthcare industry, and we're going to explore that more in today's conversation. But beyond being fortunate to have you as a podcast guest, I truly am blessed to count you as a friend. You've been an important part of my life and my family's life as we went through an end-of-life experience with my father-in-law, I'm sure you remember, and you shared counsel with me. You shared your love and concern, and, and to me, you exemplified what patient care should look like. Wow, I thank you, and I'm honored. I want to take a step back to when we first met. You were one of the first individuals, rather than an organization, to join the ACLC. So this was before your time at Crossroads, and you reached out to us, and you said, hey, I found you guys. I'm interested in what you're doing. You, you connected with us and started to work, and and give us your insights. And you even listed us on your LinkedIn page, which we thought was really cool at the time, you know, as an endeavor that you were involved in. And I'm, I'm interested in how you found us and why you thought that it was important to be involved with the ACLC. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. I remember our first call. Uh, I was actually in between consultations in the emergency department when I was working for Unity Point Health uh, when you and I spoke. And I think that was the catalyst for me looking to the larger arena of healthcare. What, what's possible? What's going on? Who's connecting with who? How can I learn and grow and share experiences? Uh, as Unity Point, you know, many years ago was an early adopter uh, kind of a care organization. And uh, as a provider and board member, I was physician and, and part architect in our ACO Pioneer project through CMMI, being behind the scenes seeing what organizations were trying to do and struggling with as far as transforming healthcare. That's what led me to, to discovering the ACLC. And I was just fortunate enough to, you know, at that time, have you believe I had something to say? And so that was the introduction. Why have I found it so valuable? And what do I see the ACLC brings to the larger, you know, healthcare narrative is, it's bringing together thought leaders from various organizations who have obviously various histories, but we're all struggling with the same thing. How do we think about caring differently? Specifically, I remember our first conversation, and it was about healthcare reform, accelerating change, value, patient centricity, all this, the greater world of healthcare to some extent in turmoil and, and how do we how do we see our, our way through the maze to a better day for advancing illness for economics you know how do we make this sustainable as well as you know satisfactory for quality of life life expectancy provider satisfaction and it's it's like eating an elephant right how do you where do you start and i think you and i connected because we recognized there's a lot of work to be done but it's not specifically about healthcare reform we need to also bring forth a narrative, reforming how we care. So it's not just behind the scenes in the boardroom with 
maybe legal and financial at the top, but what is the way we think about caring for an individual one hour, one minute at a time, and how can we translate that? How can we reverse engineer how that's successful into programs and training and policy and reimbursement? Um, so you were instrumental in, in piquing my interest. You know, it's it's been a pleasure to be involved and see the ACLC develop over the years, to be involved at a deeper level at the meetings, cohorts. Longitudinally, I think it's a fantastic opportunity, again, for all of us to come together and, and challenge each other and learn from each other and really think um, what is possible, and not just from a medicine perspective, but the broader understanding of what it means to heal and to engage and to care. Sam, I really want to ask you, you know, how do we truly think about caring differently? A lot of our listeners may not even know much about palliative care and the crucial role that it plays in health value. I, I think this often, just because in, like in our society, palliative care runs so contra to the commonplace ideas about medicine and what doctors should do. I mean, throughout our entire lives, if we're watching ER or Grey's Anatomy, we're learning about medicine as curative care, where it's the art of medicine and the science is really focused on surgeries and procedures and therapies and all these other medical interventions to fight or fix the cause of illness. And palliative care, as I understand it, it's really more about supportive medicine and therapy and you know, controlling symptoms, you know, really focusing on rehabilitation and counseling that really focuses on the quality of a patient's life and their emotional well-being. So instead of focusing on the question of like, how can I prevent death? It's really more like palliative care allows a caregiver to ask a patient, you know, how do you want to live? Changing that question, I think, in, is, a, you know, a paradigm shift in our society that really focuses us in a way that allows us to think about clinical interventions differently. So I, you know, can you provide our listeners with a better understanding of what palliative care is and what it isn't and how it complements curative care? Can you just speak about how that plays into this needed paradigm shift as we look to embrace palliative care within our nation's health system? As a physician, I am trained to recognize disease and debility. And I am trained to do something to that to try to combat it, to defeat it, to cure it, to, to get rid of it. If I see an increase in either of those, disease or debility, I am trained to do more to it. And so it, it is really a linear algorithmic model, which loosely translates into an escalation of, of care, and you know, not care specifically, but an escalation of clinical interventions. What's missing uh, in my training, what's missing in present day training is the acute recognition that that mentality sets us up as providers for repetitive and ultimate failure. The goal through matriculation is to defeat the disease, to prevent death. You know, subtextually, death is a failure. I hear it all the time in how we diagnose people. You have congestive heart failure. You have failed chemotherapy, and it goes on and on and on. We are set up for a lifetime as a provider of repetitive failure. And that is not a comfortable place. It's not where I want to be. Recognizing an absolute inevitability that I'm going to die, you're going to die, 
all of us are, when we're trained that we can't even acknowledge that it exists, precludes us from accepting it, precludes us from creating a vernacular to talk about it. And that precludes us from thinking differently than this linear algorithmic escalation of clinical intervention. So the question, how do I prevent death? Do you want to die? Which is a question we hear too often. That sets up a paralytic fear where we succumb to this escalation of care because of this fixed false narrative, which is loosely defined as a delusion that we have the ability to, to overcome death. To your point, how do I want to live whether we have cancer, whether we're just adding candles to the birthday cake? That shifts the narrative to loving, learning, growing through every breath, as opposed to uh, just doing things to someone, which again is the linear algorithmic model of present day healthcare. We need to focus on doing things for and with people based on a couple of tenets. And this is beginning to define true palliative care. Those tenets are one, true informed consent. We need to be the translators of the clinical realities to our patients, our caregivers, and loved ones. No longer should we say, really don't know what the outcome is going to be. Only God knows, or all these other things we've heard. As a provider, I can map out fairly, consistently, and exactly what's going to happen, and over what time period, heart failure, dementia, metastatic cancer, so true informed consent is coming to the table and putting the good, bad, and, and the indifferent right there in front of uh, the people that we are charged with caring for. It's not only our fiduciary responsibility, I think there's a moral and ethical responsibility. It's not my life, it's theirs. We've got to come clean. We have to learn to recognize that inevitability and to translate it, not in a mean or curt way, but Dementia is a progressive, irreversible, fatal disease. Let's talk about that. And then let's ask the question, what is sacred to you as an individual? That doesn't change over time, whether you have cancer or not. Let's act on that rather than escalating care against a losing proposition, which is beating Mother Nature. I need to pause and just say, I am absolutely for aggressive therapies, curative therapies, chemotherapy, surgery. It's the appropriateness against the backdrop of where somebody's at in their physiologic journey that I question and I challenge. So true palliative care needs to come forward with, with the ability to look at the entire human being, you know, to go beyond the limits of allopathic reductionism. I need to look at the whole human being. I need to bring that forward, make sure that the individual has a thorough understanding of what it is, map out where they're at, where they've come from, where they're at, where they're likely to go, and then ask the questions. Are you scared? Most people say, Doc, I'm not scared of dying. It's interesting because that's not the question I've asked. They're scared of getting dead. The time between right now and inevitability. We can shine a light on the clinical realities of what's going on to empower people to overcome a paralytic fear so it translates from trying to avoid death i have time i'm going to live it pursuant to what's sacred to me palliative care is about acknowledging that eliciting that connecting at a broader sense of the human condition beyond our own and certainly beyond 
the historic clinical interventions with individuals so we can give them the pen to write the last chapter or several chapters of their life. It is not about giving up. It is not about talking people out of conventional therapies. It is about aligning those therapies with the clinical reality of where somebody is at physiologically and what their goals of care are. Once they've been informed of those clinical realities, we can be as aggressive as the interventional cardiologist. We can be as aggressive as the surgical oncologist. It's aggressive with the truth. It's aggressive with, with translating uh, and interpreting where somebody's at right now. It's being super aggressive with managing symptoms through every day of, of someone's life. I offer one of the challenges we face in palliative medicine, little beyond a decade of formal accreditation. So I, I would argue we are in our pre-adolescence as, as a field. We have struggled, and, and we have to own this, not having a concise, unified definition of what palliative care is, can, and should be. We've all seen palliative programs over the last decade. It's been a variety of clinical deliverables and definitions and this and that. Palliative care is not about dying. It is not synonymous with hospice. It is not about giving up. It's not about challenging hope. Palliative care is about the truth, translating it. At any time during a journey, if somebody is aggressively pursuing curative therapies, palliative care can be involved to help understand the effects of those therapies, what the undulations, fluidity of this journey is, empowering people to make choices in real time. Patients aren't committed you know, to 10 months of chemotherapy and debulking surgery just because they go through the first round. The body changes there has to be someone who keeps an eye on that. Again, not to steal hope, but to clearly, truthfully help someone define what they're hoping for. And same with fighting. How many times have I had providers say, you know, my, my patient's a fighter. Or patients, families say, you know, dad's a fighter. So am I. Absolutely. But we have to define what we're fighting for. And so let's circle back to your initial question and comment. The present paradigm sets up fighting to beat Mother Nature, which means we all fail. When too often people are told by the oncologist, cardiologist, or primary care physician, there's nothing more I can do for you. It's egregious. First and foremost, you can always care. And the care needs to start further upstream, not days or weeks before someone is to die, but years. It needs to start a diagnosis. Congestive heart failure is a progressive, irreversible, fatal disease. This is what it looks like. These are the things we need to be engaged with as we proceed through time to give people the choice of how they want to live. Tim, that's a great answer, a great response. And we're going to touch on some of the things you mentioned a little more fully as we continue to ask additional questions. I want to focus on something you said about the paradigm shift, the physiological journey, uh, this linear algorithm. You and I worked together recently with um, Greg Kotzbauer and is the white paper that we produced. And in it, you taught us, and, and I know you've taught this nationally and internationally as well, the concept of the inflection period. I'd like you to expound a little bit on the inflection period that you talk about. For most humans, 
I offer there's a moment in our journey, our health journey, when our bodies no longer have the capacity to recover or restore. And this is what I deem the inflection period. And I argue that it's, it's a time when the focus of our healthcare efforts should change to reflect this reality. The inflection period is not chronologic. It is not solely based on the number of candles on your birthday cake. It is physiologic. And for all of us, it is slightly different. I've cared for 105-year-olds whose bodies just wore out and had no diseases. I've cared for seven-year-olds who have died with or without cancer and everybody in between. So it's not chronologic, it's physiologic. Following the linear algorithm that we touched on earlier of doing things to patients, I think Western medical practice is designed for, for many reasons to continue to provide quote unquote curable strategies when cure is not possible. And disease mitigating strategies often potentiate more harm than benefit. The, the language we use as providers, the matriculation we go through precludes us from seeing this inevitability. All of us have been to the doctor in our lives when we've suffered from the common cold and after an evaluation, the doctor says, you know, I'm not going to prescribe you an antibiotic because I think this is a viral cold. And, you know, unfortunately, I can't cure this. And we've all had colds in our lives. And five or 10 days later, we're fine. Think about that language. And I sat there as a medical student and a resident and a fellow in the oncologist's office. You have a new diagnosis of widely metastatic pancreatic cancer. We can't cure this. It's the same thing they've heard over and over again when they've gone for the common cold. As a physician, I understand the difference. As a human being facing uncertainty, facing the word cancer, we can't cure this. It has very different meaning than saying, this is a progressive, irreversible, fatal disease. And we know that the life expectancy of this type of cancer is usually about eight to 10 months. We need to understand where you're at, where you've come from, what's sacred to you, and then formulate a plan based on that. Two very different conversations. I think providers lack um, a tool to map it out, to help people understand. The inflection period is a tool. And there exists, because of our ineptitude, an iatrogenic causality, which potentiates decline secondary to physiologic stress. So as our physiologic capabilities and reserves diminish, all interventions, regardless of intent, eventually act as a negative stressor and, and push this physiologic continuum, the physiologic system, further towards its end. And furthermore, within this period, this inflection period, which again, I think is part biology, is part environmental. There's a break point within it, point of transition. So there's a diminishing return on an investment as far as supporting life and quality of life once one enters into their inflection period. Clinical interventions that are done lose their effect. There's a point that the body 
has no more reserves. And anything we do is a negative stressor. And it actually causes harm. I've seen it time and time again. And can accelerate the decline, decrease quality, and bring death, that inevitability, much closer. For example, just this week, colleague of mine's mom was admitted to the hospital for recurrent cervical cancer. She was relatively asymptomatic, not suffering from anything, just a general malaise and something's changed. X-ray revealed fluid on her lungs. They said, well, this is an opportunity to put in a drain. Again, not eliciting what her goals are, not understanding where she's at on this arc of life, not questioning what's important to her. You have fluid on the lungs, it needs to be trained. As they put a drain in, she coded and died. They revived her, but the iatrogenic causality is the things we did to her stressed her body so much, it took her beyond the point of living. Patients become victims when we don't see this reality. And because the system is set up, and we're trained such not to see the reality. After the code, resuscitated in the intensive care unit, actively dying with a widely metastatic cancer, well beyond her point of transition within the inflection period, he said, um, we don't think she meets hospice eligibility criteria. In other words, we don't see that she's actively dying. We would like to try to put in the chest tube again. There are more things we can do to her, and they never paused and said, should we? Are they for her and with her based on where she's at? So you can map out the inflection period across any disease state. You can use identifiable biomark in parallel to get an idea where somebody's at, to have a, a prudent conversation about what's possible. That's the inflection period a mental model, a tool to help us understand where people are at so we can be translators to our colleagues, to ourselves, patients and families. It starts with, again, acknowledging inevitability. Death is an absolute certainty. Check the box. None of us can do anything that is going to happen. Let's talk about life. This is a tool that translates how we want to live. We acknowledge death happens. We have to accept it and create the vernacular and talk about it using tools to help translate and then think outside of that linear algorithm. My colleague's mom absolutely did not need a chest tube. She wasn't profoundly short of breath. It caused harm. So Tim, I want to ask you more about how do we think outside of this linear algorithm as a society? You referenced the limits of allopathic reductionism. I mean, we're, we basically have, a, in Western medicine, a, a model of delivering care on a reductionist approach to, to the body and disease that dates back all the way to the 1600s. The system is really focused on medical specialization and compartmentalization of organs and body systems. And, you know, to your point, I mean, the model is a failure. It's come at a great cost to our country financially. It's led to disempowerment of patients, fragmentation in the healthcare delivery system, and patient dependence on healthcare providers for treatment and management of disease. And it's not focused on whole person care. And I really want to think about the locus of control and how do we shift it? In the allopathic model, it's the locus of control is often frequently external 
you know, to the patient with the healthcare provider and the prescribed treatment at the center. So as we look to have that beyond just the kind of the Isaac Newton moment where we realize that there needs to be a shift in creating the mental construct, that's there. And you've uh, illustrated in a way that is just so mind blowing. And in terms of like, we have to realize that this, this needs to be the future of American healthcare. But then how do we create the mind shift that needs to take place in society? You, oftentimes you hear, I mean, still to this day, you'll hear um, politicians say, you know, the United States has the best healthcare system in the world. And it's not true, you know, when you look at outcomes and, and health value. So what needs to happen in our society? for us to truly tap into that reservoir of healing potential that is only made possible through a whole person care model that prioritizes a patient's personal values. What do we need to do so that they can see it and then believe it and then we can, we can actually adopt it as the standard for, for the way healthcare is gonna be delivered in the future of, of our country? I love the question, thank you. The locus of control being external you're absolutely correct. How do we get that to be internal? It's going from a transactional relationship, healthcare provider, healthcare system, patient, to a translational one. And so the intimacy that existed as you go from a transaction to translating what's going on bi-directionally, right? Uh, first, I have to recognize what's going on, which is usually difficult, again, as we touched on, based on my education and training ad nauseum, what's been beat into me and how to think clinically. So I, I, have to, I have to translate a different narrative for myself. I have to find my own meter versus rhyme to translate that to the individual and understand their meter versus rhyme so that we can have a relationship on a journey. So we need to advocate for people. And healing, I think, you know, how do we take it to the macro world? How do we overcome fear, fear of the unknown, fear of dying. Um, I, I offer, again, people are not afraid of dying. They're afraid of the quote unquote getting dead. And that's ambiguity. If we translate what's going on, if we listen and hear and allow them to tell us what's in their heart, right? What their little voice is telling them, then we can parallel and we're aligned and we can overcome that fear of ambiguity of what's going to happen, right? We, we lay out the clinical map. You have heart failure. You know, generally there's exacerbations. Here's what we can do, et cetera. It's about a higher level of engagement. And so how do we achieve that? We have to ask different questions. Uh, we have to ask, patient comes in first time, how are you? And then take their hand and say, how are you? And allow them to tell us. They'll tell us everything. Then to ask, are you scared? We touched on earlier and to elicit what is sacred to the individual and then to say what does your little voice tell you when we engage at that level you have a trusted sacred relationship and fear dissipates it's interesting because people recognize this inevitability much more readily than we do when we don the long white coats and people don't want falsehoods they want cards on the table. It may not be the most welcome news, but at the end of the day, we've established trust and they thank you for being honest. We have to offer in the public narrative, how do we think about living? 
we've seen a, a, a huge uptick over the last decade in death over dinner, death by design, you know, all of these variations of talking about death and dying, which I, I think their motivations, you know, are inherently good. It's how do we face inevitability? I challenge death. Again, death is going to happen, period, after we exhale our last breath. Everything else is about how we want to live. When we lead with those four questions every time, we gain insight into not only what's important to the person, but prognostication. Those have helped me more than any lab test, PET scan, you name it. People know what's going on. They may not translate it into clinical terms. Gentleman comes to the emergency department. I'm the first physician they call because he's got a lot of symptoms. All the labs have been sent off. He's been to radiology. Everything's pending. We don't have results yet. You know, Tom, what's going on? Doc, I'm dying. Tell me about that. Well, I woke up eight weeks ago and something was different. Well, the labs come back. Radiology comes back. You know, widely metastatic, you know, cancer. Tom can't say, well, I think I've developed a you know, metastatic, you know, medullary thyroid cancer. Tom just knows something's different. We have to transcend medicine, meet people where they're at one day at a time, allow them to listen and hear the little voice because it's absolutely right 100% of the time and let that be our guide. That's how we overcome the stigma of death and dying in this country. That's how we can embrace the time, overcome paralytic fear. We still be sad. We still be angry at the end of life or during the years that lead up to that because of a progressive or reversible disease. But we don't need that anger uh, or sadness to be translated into fear, which paralyzes us and precludes us from living. Some of the greatest times as a human being, not just as a goofy physician, but some of the greatest times as a human being have, have been on these journeys with people with horrific diseases. People can live more during that time than maybe they ever have their entire life. We have the capacity to support that journey. It absolutely every time translates into what we want economically as well. We're not precluding people from having or access or, or getting interventions or medications or this and that. We're aligning what's possible with their physiologic reality. So people choose not to end up in the ICU. Translate that to present day, what's going on globally the last six to eight months with the pandemic secondary to the coronavirus. We're seeing time and time again, utilization increase significantly, particularly ICU beds, ventilators. Who's ending up there? So disproportionately, it's the advanced ill population. I was asked a question earlier this year, do I believe in mandatory DNR, mandatory do not resuscitate for anybody you know, who is admitted to the hospital and has coronavirus and, and a progressive disease? I said, I don't think that's a question to ask, and it doesn't help us understand why we're here. We're here because we failed 10 years ago. We're here because we failed to empower all majority of these individuals who are ending up on ventilators with the truth that whether it's coronavirus or something else, this is a progressive disease, there's going to be a tipping point where you're faced with this decision. We've never given them the truth, thus we've never given them a choice. All they know is what's the next step. And as providers, respiratory failure, we're going to have to intubate you. And we know it's a zero-sum game for a specific segment of the population. Now, if someone is absolutely empowered with all the truth and that's what they choose, 
absolutely palliative care supports that because it's not about clinical intervention, yes or no, it's about the truth and supporting decisions. We wouldn't have a resource crisis because again, when you leave with the truth upstream, 99% of the people say, why would I want to be on a ventilator if it's a zero sum game and it prevents me from living what is sacred to me? More often than not, being home, surrounded by family and loved ones. So it's a great opportunity right now because of the economics of medicine, because of what we're all feeling and experiencing because of a pandemic, to rethink what the heck it is we're doing and how we do it and set the stage for a better future. People should not end up on a ventilator because we healthcare has failed them with the truth and the ability to make a choice. And then they die alone because we're not letting any family members into the hospital. That should never happen. We have to own that as a healthcare system. It's not the coronavirus. It's the linear algorithmic model and the lack of understanding things like the inflection period and being absolute uh, truthful translators upstream that's put us where we're at. Make no mistake, but we have the opportunity to recognize that and move forward. That's how I think we change the narrative. That's how people, general public, are gonna embrace living a life and having prudent conversations. So Tim, our, our listeners today come from many different types of ACOs and risk-bearing entities, really innovators in the industry moving towards value-based payment. I, I wanted to ask you about this uh, recent survey that came out in January, a survey that was done by Levitt Partners and NACOs, and it showed that only 10% of ACOs selected palliative care as a top priority for improving efficiency and lowering costs. Now, there are ACOs that are, that are definitely leading in this space. Uh, there was um, the American Journal of Managed Care just in April referenced several different studies. Uh, Biden Health, for example, is really doing some you know, innovative work and in technology-assisted home monitoring and care alignment strategies and community partnerships moving towards implementing a, a very comprehensive palliative care model. Uh, Facey Medical Group is another ACO example that's leveraging a 24-7 call center and palliative trained physicians and nurse practitioners working with patients. And they're showing 70% fewer hospitalizations. And I think it was like 50% uh, fewer ED visits. So there, there are ACOs who are doing this work, but the only 10% have palliative care as a top priority. I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the barrier to more widespread adoption of palliative care by ACOs? And what can the ACLC do to further inform ACO, ACO leadership about how important palliative care is to the success and value-based payment and ultimately improving the patient experience and the quality of their lives? Yeah, I appreciate the question. The acceleration of adoption of, of palliative care is predicated on a couple of things. One, a unified definition, again, of what palliative care is, can and should be, and we touched on this earlier. And the systems eliciting from those in the field, the palliative care experts, to identify opportunities within those systems that palliative care can be utilized. So asking, you know, how do we integrate it? And then committing to that. One of the challenges I've 
faced and many colleagues to adoption is the lack of desire of, of investing now resources, so personnel and, and money to create a program for benefits in the future. If, if we build a cardiac catheterization center, there's a definite correlation between the money spent and over time how much we're gonna make. Palliative care is a little more amorphous and cost avoidance falls in that gray area. Uh, is it profit or is it not? So the revenue stream is, is another issue. Right? So not just a definition of what palliative care is, can and should be, but the economics of it. You know, As a palliative physician, I don't bring in as much as an interventional cardiologist. However, there is a false belief that palliative is inherently a money loser in the fee-for-service industry. When done moderately appropriately, it can be economically neutral. When done at a very high level, like our organization right now is demonstrating, the ROI is actually greater than you know, capitated daily rate in hospice. So it doesn't have to be a money loser. But the systems have to come to the table and say, okay, here's what I know. What is it that I don't know? And what's the difference between the two? How do we move forward? So there's that. And then overcoming the historic ignorance and bias of things we've touched on already. Again, palliative care is not giving up. And so how do we have all the players sit down? Cardiology, nephrology, pulmonology, everybody sit to the table and say, here's what palliative care is and here's how it can help. Not just your patients, but you, Mrs. or Mr. Nephrologist. And let's, you know, let's extrapolate that out to the, to the macro world of system economics, national economics, et cetera. That rarely happens. The systems that are successful you know, have many toes or a foot or a leg in the water that is that conversation. And they recognize the, the longer play as well. Uh, so they're willing to invest in it. And, and to hold each other accountable. So as a physician, I need to hold myself accountable. I need to hold my colleagues accountable to think differently about what we're doing and why. And systems falter because of the economics uh, to hold big revenue producers accountable for the work they do that may be deleterious to the patient outcomes and ultimately, you know, the long play economically to the healthcare system. And again, I think it's rooted in how we're trained and how we've been incentivized historically. It's again, to do things to people and try to beat death. So I'm not holding out individuals. I'm not picking on any particular subspecialty. It's fairly ubiquitous. So that I think that's why 10% of ACOs don't understand what true palliative care is, how it can be deployed, what the metrics are to identify success, to correct the navigation as, as you continue to uh, bring forth a program across the entire continuum. It's very disappointing, those numbers, you know, when I read those reports. Uh, it's not surprising, but again, the narrative is such that let's rework the Legos we have and we've been building our system with the last several decades rather than maybe, that's, maybe it's the wrong Lego set. Maybe we need to, you know, take a more, I don't want to say dramatic or drastic approach 
approach, but really think that the building blocks we have are getting us where we want to go and where we need to go. You know, I laugh, what's the definition of insane? It's repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That's what we're doing. We really need to challenge the fundamental tenets of, of what is the, the ground level of our healthcare systems so that we can bring forth better change. Tim, talking about bringing forth that change and, and really, I want to get down to kind of the implementation and the, the advice to ACOs who are looking to either start palliative care or enhance palliative care programs, recognizing you've been through the nation, you've seen what startup programs look like, or you've seen the more mature models, you've kind of seen the breadth of, of what palliative care services are being offered, still recognizing it's, it's in its youth as a, as a specialty. You've got individuals like yourself, CAPC, which is the Center to Advance Palliative Care, and others who are working to standardize things. Um, you know, so we're still, uh, there's a lot of variation in the way that palliative care is being delivered. What is your advice to ACOs who want to stand up palliative care programs? What are the things that you're seeing that work well? What doesn't work? You know, what has the largest impact? Maybe what kind of infrastructure do they need? How do you advise a, a, an ACO executive to start a palliative care program? I, I would offer it is utilizing several tools. You had mentioned CAPSI, the Center to Advance Palliative Care, an outstanding organization. If you'll forgive me, it's the Vatican of palliative care. And, and Dr. Diane Meyer you know, is an exceptional human being and clinician and, and thought leader. And it provides a point of reference. It is a starting block with structure, which I think every system needs and desires and yearns for. That's what they're accustomed to. It really provides some fundamental tools to take the first step into evaluating what a palliative care program might look like in your organization and, and how to monitor, you know, how to manage expectations of that palliative care program. I, I can't speak highly enough for CAPSI. I think a second component that needs to be integrated is the ability to have people who think like we are discussing today to come in and spend time, boots on the ground, listening and hearing and engaging and, and going from individual executives within the system and individual providers within the system uh, to understand transactional to translation. I, I can give you a recipe and, and by no means am I diminishing what CAPSI has to offer. But if we just fundamentally say there's, there's these recipe cards of, uh, cards of uh, how to employ, how to start, how, how to assess quality, et cetera. My grandmother used to make exceptional chocolate chip cookies. I can read the Nestle Toll House morsel recipe I'm never going to make the same cookies she made. Right? What are those intangibles? Uh, again, it's a recipe. It's the translation, the adaptation, integration of that recipe to your direct care employers and translate it horizontally and vertically throughout your organization. That's the key to getting 50% emergency room reductions and moving this upstream so it's not you know, quote unquote, pre-hospice, come clean up the proverbial mess. Someone's actively dying. I think those two things, 
structure that's offered by organizations like CAPSI, and then bringing actual individuals in who have the experience of, of doing this successfully, spending time, not just a webinar and a one-off, but integrating, integrating individuals like that into every aspect of the organization. They have to sit on the board or at least be present. Uh, they have to sit down with all the other subspecialties. You have to develop the relationships to transform the care deliverables. I think those are the two things that are needed and I've seen uh, have helped programs get started because they lead to trust, right? It's, it's relationship-based. That's the same thing. It's no different than caring for a patient. You have to be transparent, translate, forthcoming, have trust, and advocate for each other. Palliative care does not need to be antagonistic with interventional cardiology. We should both be advocating for what's right for the patient, right care, right time. That's how we overcome you know, a paucity of ACOs, even considering AC, uh, palliative care being on the table. Hello, Tim. I, I wanted to ask you also about workforce development as it applies to adopting palliative care. A few years ago, the most recent edition of the National Consensus Project Clinical Practice Guidelines for Palliative Care came out in an effort to promote standardization and consistency in care delivery uh, for palliative care organizations. So in, the, in this report, it, it said that we need to have specific investment in the education of mid-career clinicians since they didn't have palliative care knowledge and skill and training when they went through uh, their formalized training as a clinician. So I, I wanted to see what your thoughts were on how healthcare organizations in partnership with institutions for higher learning can work together to ensure that we have the necessary reskilling and upskilling of the clinical workforce that's needed to support widespread adoption and effective implementation of palliative care delivery models. You know, here at the ACLC, we're all about workforce development and, and understanding the competencies that are going to be required in health value. And I think there's a significant piece of that equation that ties into palliative care. So as we finish up our interview today, I thought you might be able to give us some insights on how healthcare organizations and higher ed can work together to really create a more consistent and standardized model for care delivery? What exists in the clinical education space uh, is so lacking in understanding of everything we're talking about today. Uh, and that parallels you know, the workforce that's, that's been out there for a number of years. We need to bring forward a new language or vernacular so that current providers and, and the future providers have a means that they can understand this inevitability and deliver on it. If we fail to do that, I'm just going to be repeating what has been done over the last decades. And it needs to be integrated from day one. When I was a student, you know, we had a half a day on end of life issues. And Every other moment of my, my medical education was about recognizing disease and doing something to it. There, there was no acknowledgement that death was even a reality and that people change, right? And should we? It was never a question. Should we do these things to someone? I, I think we need to start with day one. Not this is medicine. This is life. 
And here's how we need to approach medicine in caring for a life. And by doing that, we go from being alive ourselves as providers, our patients go from merely being alive, again, to actually living. Very different. It has to be widespread adoption. People have to believe that what we're doing, and they acknowledge and accept that, that what we're doing, how we've done it, is failing. You know, we need this collective understanding of what can be possible and that medicine is not about cure, it's about healing, which is very different, and it's about caring. That has to be ingrained, at least brought forward and, and thought about competitively uh, throughout all of our matriculation and everything we do. I offer, at what cost do we cling to an archaic paradigm medicine that precludes true informed consent, celebrating life beyond its last minutes to hours, you know, overcoming fear of the unknown, because we do things to people. We are affectionately, iatrogenically potentiating the greatest series of atrocities the world has ever known. When we practice as we have historically, we do hurt people. We do cause harm and steal from them the opportunity of choice and the opportunity of living. We need to recreate a true sense of community and embrace what's uniquely sacred to all of us. And so if we recognize what we're doing causes harm, we have to be accountable to ourselves and our colleagues to try to change that. Or we are complicit in this ongoing egregious act of harming those who we have sworn to protect. I can't think of a better way, Tim, to end our podcast today just such profound words of wisdom. And I really think our listeners are going to benefit greatly from your expertise and hopefully adopt a whole person, patient-centered care and move the continuum along towards greater health value and in, in their respective organizations. Dr. Tim Eric, it has been absolute pleasure again. Thank you for joining us today on the Race to Value. How can our listeners find out more about the work that you're doing with Crossroads Hospice and Palliative Care and hear more about your thought leadership in the space? Well, thank you both for the opportunity. Again, I'm honored and uh, thrilled the ACLC exists as individual sisters yourself at the helm. And I look forward to a, a longevity of a relationship. People can reach me via LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website, uh, my last name, irigmd.com. I'm easy to find, and I welcome anybody reaching out for any reason, personal or professional. Uh, we have to care for each other as human beings, period. So I thank you both for the time and opportunity. Thank you so much, Tim. It's been a wonderful pleasure.